0: I don't want to be the generation that did what happened in the 1870s and 80s where they allowed a new democracy in the South to crumble and become Jim Crow when they could have stopped it, especially when I have young kids who are going to inherit whatever we do or don't do. So the parallels to history are, I hate to say it as motivating it gets for me, both for the good if we do things well and for the bad if we fail. Hello.
1: David is a two-time statewide candidate for office in Ohio, the former chairman of the Ohio State Democratic Party, the author of many books, both fiction and nonfiction, including Laboratories of Autocracy, which is about what Republicans are doing in the states that they control, and most recently, Saving Democracy, a user's manual for every American, which is about what we can all do to fight for our country. I asked David about his career as a writer candidate elected official party chairman and activist and what he thinks we should be doing if you're interested in protecting and improving our democracy you should definitely listen so after a quick word from my sponsor my interview with David pepper of saving democracy. Hi, David. Would you mind introducing yourself, giving me a quick biography?
0: Sure. David Pepper. I'm in Ohio, born and raised here. Been in politics for some time. I was a council member here, a county commissioner. Ran statewide twice for two statewide offices. Didn't quite win, but somehow that compelled people to want me to become chair of the Ohio Democratic Party. I did that for a number of years. Also, I'm a lawyer. I teach and I write haven't been chair since 2020, but have stayed very busy with democracy and activism in different ways. So I've got a a wife and two young boys, so it keeps me busy as well. So that's the quick bio.
1: Yep. Um, I saw that your dad had a very big job and that intrigued me because Procter & Gamble is Sometimes in a different realm than the Democratic Party, but tell me about growing up in a household with a prominent father.
0: Sure yeah my I actually came from a household with a mother who her family had been here for generations in Cincinnati. My dad moved here to work at Procter and Gamble and obviously he's my dad so I'm proud of him. He started at the very bottom of PNG went to college on a full Navy scholarship, showed up here didn't know a soul and worked his way ultimately to the top of the company. He kind of did it the way you're, we like to think people should, and he gave back every step of the way. I would say, for the most part, I grew up in a very non-political family. I didn't get a sense of partisanship from my parents. I kind of grew up not very partisan. Obviously, we fortunate that my dad over time did well, but when I was young, it wasn't like he was some big shot. He was just working his way up. He ended up being the head of Procter & Gamble once I got to college. So it was a kind of a more normal childhood than people assume when they see that title. My experience was, was a dad and mom who were like leading the school levy campaign or the United Way campaign or always kind of taking the benefit of doing well in life and always trying to give back. So that was really how I grew up watching them do that.
1: Looks like I'm about six years older than you. And I went to Yale as an undergrad, as you did. I came out of a pretty political family but of course college always shapes a lot of one's views at such a formative time. Tell me about the four years you were there and, and how that affected you.
0: Sure, I mean, I do think it made me more, I do think I got more political at yeah, Yale. What's interesting though, just to show how non-political I was, and, and six years behind you, I got to Yale in the fall of 1989, right after Bush had beaten Dukakis, okay? It's a pretty liberal campus as I think you uh, you'd say too. And I'll never forget sitting in the main dining hall in the area that's called Commons. They passed out a little survey in the fall of 1989 that we all filled out that asked us to rate how George Bush was doing. This is George Herbert Walker Bush. And everyone on my table, I remember I filled it out. They they kind of gave Bush a 10 or a 20 out of 100. I gave him like an 80. And they <laughs> looked at me like, why do you think he's so good? I said, because again, I just wasn't partisan. I said, well, he just got started. I don't even know how to say he's done anything wrong yet. That's how nonpartisan I was. Um, I think it's fair to say that I I learned a lot and kind of grew up a lot at Yale. I was there. This is going to sound old to some of your listeners. I was a sophomore when we had the first war with Iraq. This was the one after they invaded Kuwait. That made it quite a political campus. It was interesting time. But most of my time at Yale, to be honest, I spent, I was a managing editor, ultimately the Yale Daily News. I was a reporter throughout, ultimate managing editor. So this is, a, in many ways, the, the the thing I did most at Yale was that work. I mean, it's essentially a full-time job. Plus, our deadline every night was one thirty. I was at that building every night till one thirty, And I think I learned a ton about the world and reporting and journalism and frankly, writing and all that as a journalist. So I wasn't part of, again, political anything. I worked hard in classes. I had a lot of good friends, but it was nose to the grindstone running that newspaper that kept, that was most of sort of my experience at Yale, which I loved. It was a great, it was a really fun role to play.
1: The biggest political thing on campus when I was there was a movement to divest the Yale Corporation from South Africa. What was it when you were there?
0: I would say it was the response to the uh, war. Of all the conflicts we've been in for the last several decades, I think the one that in hindsight was the least sort of controversial was that when Saddam invaded Kuwait, we went into Kuwait, liberated, and then didn't continue the war. And George Bush, to his credit, did not try and turn it into what his son did. But even then on the campus, it was very political. It was a lot of protests. I think folks who had been protesting several decades before, this was a moment to do it again. I would say that was probably the most political thing. I'd say I didn't really get that involved in it. I observed it. I reported on it. The other big thing was there was actually a good amount of politics on campus that I experienced as a a reporter. This was a time where they were cutting back on certain majors. And so there was a lot of uh, politics in, in the school that I spent a lot of time reporting. That war was sort of the big moment that that led to some controversy on campus. Although in the grand scheme of life, not what it is now or in other other eras.
1: I read that you spent several years in St. Petersburg in Russia after graduating. Tell me quickly about that time, what you learned there, and and who you were, who you got to meet.
0: This is sort of my my Forrest Gump years, but I was Forrest Gump in Russia, not in the United States, where. I kept meeting with famous people who I didn't know at the time. Some were already famous. Some would be famous. So my first job after college, I actually was a great honor of mine. I was a research intern for Zbigniew Brzezinski. And amazingly, that entire summer of 1993, he had me researching the viability and health of Ukraine. While everyone else was, this is how smart Zbigniew Brzezinski was, While everyone else was celebrating the new Russia and saying everything's gonna be glorious from here on out. Brzezinski and I learned this later, the reason he had me studying Ukraine and not Russia was his theory was that Ukraine would be the key long term as to whether or not Russia tried to re expand. And if Ukraine was weak, they would, and if Ukraine was strong, they wouldn't. And I, I didn't know that all the time. I'm just looking through daily reports of the economy and military. But that's how Brilliant! This guy was that he was so far ahead, and frankly, on the nose when it came to sort of predicting the worst of Russian instincts that we've now seen play out. Connected, my next job was in Saint Petersburg, Russia. This was all at a think tank called CSIS, Center for Strategic and International Studies. My time at that think tank in Russia, we were trying to help the city of Saint Petersburg undergo sort of economic reform, other reforms to move into sort of a market economy. And that's where I had these, in hindsight, truly over-the-top interactions. The chair of this commission that I was staffing, the Russian chair was the mayor of St. Petersburg, who had been a great reformer, a Democrat, small d. He is one of the people who stood up to the coup. But the right-hand person in the mayor's office to him was Vladimir Putin, his vice mayor. His vice mayor was assigned my project, he was our liaison to the mayor. So for a couple years, I literally, in hindsight, bizarrely would meet with Putin on a regular basis, update him on what we were doing. He would set up meetings with the people he wanted to meet with, on and on and on. And so, you know, there's a lot I can say about it. But six years later, when he became president, I was floored. I'll just be very quick on this. I met a lot of impressive Russians in St. Petersburg, Western-minded, charismatic. They cared about democracy. He was not one of them. He was one who, at the time, I would have thought, wow, among among all these really impressive, charismatic people, how'd this guy get here? Like It would have been sort of like he stuck out in a not good way. So yeah, six years later, when he's named at the last minute prime minister, then president, it was a shock because of of the people in St. Petersburg that I had met, He's sort of the, I would have predicted the mayor I met might have become that, or even others. This is not who I would have thought. And along the way, because he became president, a lot of the figures I met in St. Petersburg would go, would go on to be national leaders in Russia because he brought them all with him. So it was this very, in hindsight, a very odd three years that I happened to be, I'm probably one of the only Americans who spent this much time with Putin who wasn't doing something wrong. And that was all my early to mid-20s.
1: It seems like that would give you a much broader view of kind of the world and foreign policy and things like that than your average person would later run for city council in uh, Cincinnati.
0: Yeah, especially later. One thing that it did for me, and it's helped me as I've written both nonfiction and fiction, I think being over there in the time I was over there also kind of let me look back at our own country with a little bit of a distance and so if you look at like my first nonfiction book or even my first fiction book, which is all about gerrymandering, I use a Russian oligarch based upon my time in Russia as the sort of character who's explaining how screwed up our own system is when it comes to gerrymandering. I think it gave me you know, some confidence being around VIP type people at a young age. I mean, The Western chair of my project was Henry Kissinger, so I'd interact with him or Brzezinski, as I mentioned. So it it did open my eyes to the world in a certain way, but it also gave me a perspective that I often would think about when I was there, which is sometimes we let our own partisanship and our own American glasses blind us to some of our issues. And when I was over in Russia or doing this work, I could sort of see us from a distance. And, and that's why like a lot of my current project is to say to people, what would we think if what was happening in our country were happening in another country? We'd be horrified by it. We wouldn't say, well, it's just one party doing this. We would say, my God, you're losing your democracy. So that's the other benefit of having been overseas in this these formative years was it gave me a little bit of a, of a distant vision of what our own country looks like. Both the very good stuff because I I love getting home. It was great to be back after a long trip, but also now especially what some of the negative stuff looks like if you actually remove our very sort of local partisan glasses from it. The other thing it did is uh, one of the things I've always been, believe it or not, because you wouldn't catch it in some of my current stuff, is I also am a heck of a policy wonk. And so one of the things on city council that was me as a county commissioner that was me one of the things I was trying to do when I worked in Russia was bring sort of best practices from Western cities and uh, to St. Petersburg. And so that kind of created a habit of always being on the lookout for best practices. And and some of my books now, the most recent one, it's all about trying to lift certain best practices to make democracy stronger as well. So I've always sort of operated that way. I learned a lot of that in that first job.
1: When did you first think i i want to go to law school was that something that you're thinking about as an undergrad which is very common among i don't know people working at at the at the yale daily news yeah, or I,
0: I thought about it i think i applied after my first year out and i deferred i wasn't sure i thought i would do it and ironically when i ultimately went three years after college i thought i was gonna go in international law i mean my whole if you think about what i just described my my major was history and international studies, Russian-American diplomatic history. I work at CSS. I thought my life was going to be about like foreign relations to some degree. And when I did go to law school, that was sort of what I had in mind. Obviously, I took a very different path in the end, going from international to incredibly local. But yeah, I think I had it in mind. I wasn't sure. You know, it's funny about undergrad, and this is, I'm sure, true today as well, there are only a few paths that are so clear to, to seniors in college. At Yale, at least, there was the Wall Street path. I didn't want to do that. There was the law firm path. I didn't go to graduate school. And the rest of us sort of had to make it up as we went. Like, there wasn't some clear path. And so I, I interned for Brzezinski. Out of the blue, I that Russia job opened up. I applied for it. So I, I I didn't have a firm path, but after a couple of years, I also thought I, I want to go to law school and but I thought I'd use it for international law.
1: I've interviewed a whole lot of people over the last six and a half years in the progressive ecosystem. A bunch of notable leaders are Yale law grads. Why do you think that is?
0: It's a small school, and so it is quite selective. They clearly are able to get people who who feel to be future leaders. I also think Yale Law School does have a vibe, and you know this going in, that it it really is geared towards public service. A lot of people end up going to the big firms, a lot going to academia. But one reason I was drawn to it was, and I didn't, you know, I don't think anyone, unless maybe the most confident people in the world apply, there thinking they're going to get in. It's very hard to get in. But I, I was drawn to it, especially because it felt like it was geared towards public service. And you feel that when you're there as well. So, people may have short term paths that take them in other directions, including the need to pay back loans. But, you know, who was right around my time at Yale you know, Law School? Cory Booker. He was a year above me. Stacey Abrams was a classmate. You end up getting people who are drawn to it and then ultimately potentially inspired into public service by their time there. And that's true not just of figures on the left, but of the right as well, for good or for bad. But I think there was always a sense, even when I applied there, that this is a small school, and it's a school that has some sense of of a public purpose to wire learning law. And again, while some will not pursue that path in the end, I think a lot go for that reason. And a lot of us still do that after we graduate, which is what I did.
1: I noticed you later teach voting rights law in the University of Cincinnati. Did you take that as a Yale law person? It's funny.
0: It didn't exist then. Election huh. law really exploded later. I mean, when I was in law school, I'm going to sound old. The area of voting rights was actually pretty static. We had the Voting Rights Act. We had the cases that upheld it. There weren't nearly. You would have never thought. I the, mean, there
1: was there were attacks on it throughout the 70s. Right. But and, and, at that and, point, and, and then the Congress would always push back and and kind of renew it. Yeah, it, for it was quite part of con
0: law. It was. Yeah. It was a big part of con law. It was the, 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 the formative cases that were basically saying, yes, Congress has this authority. You had a lot of back and forth, but but you didn't have the explosion until you started to get Bush v. Gore. And I graduated before that. The big area, I took a campaign finance class, and that was when we were moving towards McCain Feingold. And actually, it looked like we were going to have real campaign finance reform locked in. Well, obviously- What's happened, and this is true of the course I teach, so much of the stability. I mean, it was just sort of accepted that the Voting rights act was sort of it was like the Constitution. It was locked in. You may have quibbles about what it meant, but it wasn't going to go away. So you didn't have voter ID controversies until seven years after I graduated. So there really wasn't a separate course, I don't remember, or I would have taken it. I took the one I could, which was campaign finance. But the rest of it was tied into broader constitutional law. I would have taken like politically minded classes. But in terms of the actual teaching of election law, now you have, my guess is every single major law school has a separate professor just for that because it's gotten so unpredictable. We're going backwards in critical ways from Shelby County to Citizens United to more recent cases. It wasn't as hot a topic, honestly. If it was, I I was too oblivious to figure it out. But it didn't seem to be.
1: Did you clerk coming out? Was yeah. That the first
0: thing? I, well, so my big decision that led to where I am now is, I I am from Cincinnati. I grew up here, but I hadn't lived here since I went to college. We're blessed. He only he passed away just a couple of years ago. That one of the really admirable figures in American law was a Sixth Circuit judge in Cincinnati named Nathaniel Jones. He had been the former general counsel of the NAACP. Did a lot of the school desegregation cases. He was at one point one of the. He was a Carter appointee. If Reagan hadn't won and, and a Democratic one, he could have easily ended up on the Supreme Court. And it was my honor to come back to Cincinnati and clerk for him for a year. He became a great friend. We ended up teaching law school together. When I started my course, it was with him. He's an icon of that era. He was sort of the post Thurgood Marshall civil rights lawyers who end up becoming a a historic judge here. So I clerked for him for a year, which also was a year that allowed me to figure out if I wanted to move back here or not. Again, I thought I would do international work. I didn't really know I'd move back to Ohio, but clerking here for Judge Jones for a year also was a time where I decided I thought I could make more of a difference here than, than going back to some firm in D.C. and doing international work.
1: Other people I've talked to who have clerked, have said it really did a lot for their writing skills. Now, you'd been writing throughout, obviously, as a student. What did you take from that beyond what might be obvious?
0: You know, I always had been sort of a writer. I did law school papers and all that. But yeah, when you're a clerk for an appellate judge in particular, district court, you're writing. But district court, if you actually want to be a day to day litigator, district court is probably better because you're literally handling what it feels like to have cases before every day. Appellate, you're in chambers drafting memos for the judge that are a lot like the ultimate opinions and then the opinions themselves. So, yeah, I think especially if you have a, a judge who's a good writer, it's a year of writing nonstop. It's research, it's looking at briefs, and it's writing. And the heart of it is writing. So, I had a decent amount of writing experience as it was, but but yeah, it definitely that that's an entire year of nothing but writing. It's not like you're standing up making an argument. I mean, you're the one listening to the argument. And so, yeah, I think it's a very good experience, and I can't imagine it didn't make me a much better writer as I did it.
1: Was there a case that stands out from that time?
0: You know, there was a number of big cases. We handled a a major death penalty case. I'll never forget, we handled a case where a a Catholic school fired a teacher when she became pregnant, and it was kind of a real heated back and forth with some of the other judges. And I remember that one because we wrote the majority opinion, and I was quite proud of where it came out, sort of holding it as discrimination, the way they went about it. What's funny about being a clerk, it's like being a judge. What was interesting was the variety of, of cases you handle, some quite small, some incredibly weighty. It's kind of random. And every month you have a six or seven cases that you're in charge of, and some will be, again, run of the mill. Some will be absolutely enormous, and you'll have media there. And one thing I liked about it was the variety. I mean, we had a case involving a product liability that was a plane crash. The estate was trying to get paid for the the loss of the lives and you you're diving into the specifics of like the plane's mechanisms of, of what fell apart. But yeah, the big the the death penalty case as well as the um a couple of those discrimination cases were the ones that I think we were most proud of.
1: So I if I understand your career You then sort of have an overlap between practicing law for a couple firms as well as running for city council and serving is that right
0: i was at law firms for 10 10 plus years but and they were very good to me and this is getting harder these days for people to do is that they also were okay with me running for office so i grew up literally so proud of my hometown In law school, I was named most likely to be president of the Cincinnati Board of Tourism because I would always (laughs) brag about the Reds and the Bengals and Grater's ice cream, all the other things that Cincinnati and our crazy chili that we love and everyone else thinks is disgusting. And I got back to Cincinnati, and while I was clerking, we were an absolute mess. We had several years in a row of a number of fatal police shootings way beyond the average of a city of our size would have. We ultimately had riots on our streets, terrible police community relations, very segregated. And so the kid who would always brag about Cincinnati, sort of naively on the surface level stuff, moved back here thinking, man, this city's got issues, like real issues that a lot of cities have. And so I didn't come back here thinking I'm going to run for office. But as I looked around, I thought... I, I think there needs to be some new people around here doing something different than the the absolute mess and the bottom that we found ourselves at. And so I clerked for a year. I helped a friend run for Congress. He didn't win, but over helping him, I kind of saw politics up close. And one thing I concluded was this city's a mess. It needs some new leadership. And two, after helping this guy run for Congress, I thought, and I can do what I just did. Like This is not something that looks too hard. So in about December, only months after my clerkship ended, I announced for city council for the 2001 year. And and I managed to win that race. And for the next 10 years, I essentially was on city council. Ultimately, I was a county commissioner while I was also at law firms.
1: Tell me a little bit about serving on the city council, because my experience is, my, my, my brother was a county commissioner, Boulder County, Colorado. My wife has done some elected local office. I have a tiny bit of insight through that from the family. But my sense of local politics is, it is a difficult position. People care very deeply, even about small things, bike lanes, affordable housing, you name it, whatever the issue is, it it hits you and people aren't all on the same page. People don't want change, people do want change. What were you learning about politics engaging in it in that way. Both running for office and serving.
0: Well, I, I loved running. I ran before all the data stuff, okay? I knocked on every door. I didn't care if you're a Republican, a Democrat. I don't care if you voted once every five years. If you were on that list, I was knocking on your door. And I think that was so healthy. By the time a campaign ended, I felt so in tune with the community that I actually would knock on doors in between election cycles to get that feeling back. I think one lesson I learned is it's so easy even in a city hall, let alone a state house or Congress, it's so easy to get into a bubble removed from the community. And so the the campaigning I absolutely loved. And I always say to people, hey, if you're thinking about running for office, go try and volunteer for another campaign. Because if you don't like it, you shouldn't run. If you don't like the process of it, you shouldn't run. I loved it. And one reason I'm so like perturbed about gerrymandering is I feel like that process of putting yourself out there and talking to people not knowing if you're going to win. So you feel like you got to go talk to people, listen to people. It's what grounds you in the end and knowing what you want to do and knowing where the community is. So I love that part. And yeah, it's challenging. One one thing that's been amusing since is trying to deal with police community relations after that number of police shootings. And ultimately we had uh, riots on our streets, let alone like those other issues you mentioned. Should the development happen? Should the airport noise Uh, be allowed or not. They're all very intense because people feel them personally. But what that was, was actually a very good experience of having to deal with tough situations. And since then, I've had moments where people try to intimidate me in office or as a party chair by having a crowd show up. And I never cared. Or I had a press conference where some right winger shows up and starts yelling. Because if you go back to what we all faced when I was first on city council, rooms packed with people really concerned, really tense about how are we going to fix police relations? Nothing since has been as difficult as those first few years of trying to pick up a city that it was at a low point. And what I'm proud of that is we actually did a good job across party lines, across racial lines. We took a city when, and we were a lot of us who won, like I came in first out of 30. A bunch of others who won were in their 20s and 30s. Cincinnati won in something new. And a bunch of brand new people in their 20s and 30s who kind of didn't know much better than just to try and solve it. Through all that tension and all those tough meetings, we actually came up with police community reforms that everyone agreed to. We did it through a court. So it was an enforceable order. So in the end, what I like about it in hindsight is as tough as it was, it's the kind of public service we want from our politics that you never see anymore, where I literally was working with the Republican. I was working across racial lines in a pretty segregated city. And guess what? We got it done. And so I always look back. And I think that was a formative, again, going back to why I get so upset now watching politics. My formative years was grassroots campaigning and getting stuff done. And that was public service. It's why I ran. It's what I saw. It's what I experienced at first. And in the end, it's very rewarding. And so when I watch today, you and I are talking shortly after the impeachment vote, you watch all the shenanigans. And it's so the opposite of why I entered politics, and frankly, why people used to enter. And also, I think what people expect. So my experience locally was in the end, incredibly positive. And I look back to that sort of the pre-Obama era where after Obama, the, the right went off the rails, wouldn't work with anyone anymore who was a Democrat. Before that time, I actually found politics to be a very rewarding, positive you know, way to way to serve. I really enjoyed it.
1: The step from city council to county commissioner, that's a, a substantial one, What was different about the job. So
0: well, interestingly, so I actually, I was in a real close race for mayor at the end of my second term for city council, I didn't quite win. It was myself, and another Democrat, but it was a very high profile, positive race. At the end of that race, we were both Democrats. We both had f- sky high approval ratings. And shortly after that, although there's nothing worse than losing an election, it's a pretty tough, you know, public <laughs> rejection. I've written my first novel starts out with an election night loss. So I try and capture what it's like for people who haven't gone through it where the victory party turns into something quite negative quite quickly. But people approached me and said, David, you and that other Democrat pretty much agreed on most things. So the fact that you lost isn't that big a deal, but your biggest and better use of your brand is you can take everything you built through that mayor's race and you could flip the county commission for the first time in 40 years from red to blue. And uh, in hindsight, I clearly had a lot of energy because after you lose an election, A lot of times people won't recover for a couple years. Within about two months, although I had never planned on it, I converted my entire mayor's infrastructure into a county commission race that I went on to win a year later in what would have been considered an underdog race. We hadn't had a Democratic majority on the county in, in 40 years. Hamilton County used to be the heart of the Republican Party of Ohio, and I flipped it. Pretty decisively against a very—he's kind of a friend now because he's a Republican who will stand up for democracy. But he was a very big name, very conservative. Who was, who was His that? name was Phil Heimlich, literally the the son of the inventor of the Heimlich maneuver. So uh-huh. I'm running against his big name, very conservative, and I—it I, was such a nasty race. You know, we did uh, unlike now. He, to his credit, agreed to debate. So we did like a dozen debates. They were always nasty. My yard sign literally was vote pepper, the Heimlich remover, and I beat him. But it was again, kind of like that city council race uh, experience, it was really good experience to be in a tough race. To, again, to run against someone when that person is the favorite, you're the underdog, to understand, and this is one of the problems sometimes, you haven't really done politics until you've been in a tough head-to-head race. And I learned a lot in that race about a thick skin and campaigns and how you organize. It was a lot of money. And I went on to win. And then kind of similar to my time at council, I actually really enjoyed being a county commissioner. There's a lot of great public service to be done through counties, you know, social service work, criminal justice systems, economic development. But yeah, to get there was quite a doozy of a race. And by the way, Hamilton County is basically now, it's totally blue. Almost every countywide office And this win I had in 06 was one of the breakthrough races that began to change the politics of the county, which is now this very reliably blue county.
1: I mean, 2004, a little before this, Kerry in the presidential election barely fails to carry Ohio. And if he had, he would have been president. And Ohio over time goes statewide from being a purple state. A swing state in national elections to leans more than a little bit Republican, although contested. Why? What happened in Ohio that seemed to happen in, at different points, a lot of other states where they they just kind of, you know, it's different than the Southern story, I think. But what happened in Ohio?
0: So Ohio became, Democrats won Ohio in 06 and 08. Obviously, Obama won in 12. Sherrod Brown won in 12. But- what happened in Ohio, combination of things. One, there was a backlash all around the country, part of an historic pattern, sadly, to Obama winning. And it involves the people and how they vote. And that's part of what helped Trump. But it also involved a legislature that was hellbent when it took power in eleven. But so Democrats stayed home all across the country in two thousand ten. Um, and and yep. Ohio Given we just and said,
1: and that's a year where you ran as I well. I ran statewide, right? It's and a I didn't terrible year to try to run terrible statewide. year, and I
0: only lost by five. Strickland lost by two. We actually held on better than a lot of Democrats in other states that now are more blue than we are. We held on better. Strickland only lost by two. I only lost by five. In hindsight, in Ohio, those are pretty close losses. But that ten loss. And it's painful because it was quite close and Democrats just didn't show up. We were so enamored with Obama for a couple of years. If he wasn't on the ballot, we just stopped showing up. But that 2010 loss is what led to the 2011 gerrymander. 21 is terrible too, but 2011 was a far more extreme gerrymander in states like Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, and others than we've ever seen uh, since we began really gerrymandering since some legal changes Allowed it to happen. But it also was the beginning of intense suppression of the Obama coalition. The Republicans of Ohio and other states decided we are not going to let 06 and 08 happen again. Not only did Obama win the White House, when Obama won Ohio, we won the State House. Democrats did. We won the State House of all these states. And Republicans, as much as they weren't happy McCain didn't win, they were even more unhappy that they didn't win. They lost the power they thought they'd never lose. So when they had their chance in 11, to start pulling back on early vote, which they thought had cost them the election. And this began a pattern that we still see this day. When they started to purge voters for infrequently voting in a far greater degree, gerrymandered the state in a way they never had before. I mean, they used the years 11 on to crush the Obama coalition that had come together with great energy and beat them so badly and all that settled in in the years after 10, it was enough for them to stop Obama himself in 12. But over time, what you see is the heart of the Obama coalition, it's just not what it was. So that's one part of the answer. The other part of the answer is this broader sort of backlash, Democrats arguably not messaging well. Parts of the state that used to vote for Democrats, the old Youngstown Valley area, some of the old counties along the Ohio River on the east similar to parts of West Virginia, those old Democratic areas by 16 began to vote for Trump. And so you lose the Obama coalition strength. It's not gone, but it's not. Cleveland isn't voting like it's never voted since like it did, partly because people aren't as inspired, but partly because of the purging and suppression. And then you add a shift in red parts of Ohio from having been Democrat in certain times to Republican and Trump, especially, and this is something that gets lost, Trump draws voters out from the Republican rural parts of states that no one else does. So when he's on the ballot in 16 and 20, his effect especially sort of explodes, their turnout. You add that up and we move to this direction. Now, I would tell you, though, long, long term, there's been a shift in one direction in those areas. But if you look at the very recent elections in Ohio, like the special election in August, there's also a counter trend happening, which is the old largest counties of Ohio, Cincinnati and its suburbs, Columbus and its suburbs, they're actually going blue. These are the parts of the state that are actually growing in population. The parts of the state that are largely shrinking in population are going more red. So there's also a counter trend that if Democrats have good candidates and Republicans keep embracing the far right, Trump, I actually think it could trend the other way in a few years if done the right way. What just happened in August around abortion and that special August kind of is a hint that if Republicans aren't careful, moving away from the old moderate model actually is a risk for them because it's allowing us to pick up votes in suburbs that are growing. And at some point, their growth in the rural areas is limited because those rural areas sadly are shrinking.
1: So... You take another swing at statewide office in twenty fourteen, another terrible year to run, unfortunately, and and that was not too close. Wor- that was worse at, than
0: at, ten, at, yeah, at, terrible.
1: And 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 also Mike Dewine had was incumbent, right? Tough to beat. You referred earlier to for some reason people decided you'd be a good chair of the Democratic Party of Ohio, which not the greatest time to take that over is my guess. Uh, and a lot of what you've been talking about the knowledge of the state. I'm sure some of that comes from that time as chair. Tell me about chairing the Ohio Democratic Party for this time when you did, which was quite a while. What was that like?
0: We ran a good race against Dewan. I mean, I actually basically equaled him on fundraising, even as he was doing sort of pay to play with vendors to get his money. I was able to raise a lot of money from around the country, networks I would built. So we, I think people thought I ran a good campaign, even though it was a tough ending for everybody. The guy above me running for governor turned out not to have had a driver's license for 10 years while driving. Kasich took advantage of that, and we all got crushed. The top of the ticket really sets the table for everybody. I actually enjoyed being chair. I, I, the way I tried to define my role was whether it was for president, senate, we were ex- excited to reelect Sheriff Brown, state Supreme Court. We, over time, actually flipped the Ohio Supreme Court when no one was watching. But down to mayor, council member, state rep, my view was The party is the way to get good people connected to public service. So I tried to use it as the way to accomplish what I had always seen politics being about, public service. If you're not careful as a party chair, you essentially are simply a pass-through and you're just the vehicle campaigns use to get certain things done. I didn't want to play that role. That's not why I did it. I wanted to be a place that our mission was, let's get some people to do public service. And so I spent a lot of my time doing training for candidates at the local level. We created something called the Main Street Program. How can we win city council and school board and mayor's races way beyond where we're supposed to? And we we won mayor's races in towns that Trump had won 60-40 or better. We went and won them the next year. So overall, like once you define the party chair role that way, you're not only the the vehicle that some national campaign is using for certain ends, but you have your own separate mission. I I actually would found to be a very rewarding role. And one of the things I defined as critical for us was to take back a Supreme Court that had been in the other hands for years. And over two elections, we flipped three seats. We had a moderate uh, Republican chief justice. And all of a sudden, we give ourselves an independent court for the first time in decades. So I was proud of what we were able to do. I wish some things that that, that we didn't get done, we had. We reelected shared, which was great. Um but I like the broader mission and this is why I try and uh, you know inspire of other chairs I know now define the mission more broadly and help people get into the public service we need them to be doing at all levels and states.
1: You seem to be a man of a lot of energy because you're still working very hard very visibly on the democracy fight. Your book Laboratories of Autocracy got all over the place. People paid a lot of attention to it. Tell me about why you wrote that and the reception.
0: And I've got mine just sitting here too. It's a little marked up. So when I stepped aside from being chair, I was teaching, but I had no plans. I had another novel coming. I've written a bunch of novels. I had no plans on writing this book, but I'll never forget. It was like March or April in 21. And I'm quite active on Twitter, as you may know. I almost tweeted. a 100,000 people following yeah, you yeah. there. I, I almost tweeted. I actually did write the words on my on my phone where I tweet from. I was watching yet another voter suppression round and other stuff from the Ohio state house. And I tweeted the words, but I didn't just push send. These state houses are behaving like laboratories of autocracy playing off the old term that they're laboratories of democracy. I never pushed send because the minute I wrote the words, I thought, Oh, this is a big topic. I just almost tweeted. And so then I thought I'm going to turn it into an op-ed and I started writing the op-ed. And when I get going, I go, I write fast. I just kept writing and literally probably four or five months later, I had a book done and the book, as you can tell by reading it, it's kind of nonfiction, but it's also sort of a personal account of what it looks like, what it feels like. And I use it as sort of an example for the country because Ohio is not alone. Dozens of states are going through this. What's it like to be in one of these states? that's going through the anti-democracy extremist downward spiral that we are. You asked about what happened in Ohio, this is what happened. The far right grabbed hold of our state house, gerrymandered the hell out of it, so they're not accountable, and then they run the entire right-wing agenda through that unaccountable place. And so Laboratories of Autocracy was my book trying to explain to a country that only watches Washington, thinks it's only because of Trump, saying, nope, it's actually in your own backyard if you're in a red state. You don't know who these people are. We know Marjorie Taylor Greene, but there are hundreds of people just like her in your state houses and they're doing more damage than she's ever done because they're in the majority and there's no obstacles them getting what they got done. So the whole book was sort of my effort almost out of frustration to describe how bad it is in real terms, not not in some academic way, not as a wonky book, but as you feel the pain of it. and it, it took off in a way I wouldn't have expected I think because I captured the pain of it in sort of a visceral, the corruption, the extremism, the downfall of communities in red areas, even frankly, more than blue. And when the book was done, and I meant it to be sort of the Ohio story as sort of a case study. And within weeks, I started to get emails. phone. I had a lot of podcast interviews and I had some TV hits. And all over the country, I'd get emails from Iowa, Florida, Tennessee, my God, you described what we go through too. And so what I think I put my finger on before others had was that, yes, we're all watching Washington, but the front line, and we're seeing it all now every day with the Texas case and Tennessee insanity in Florida, the front line of the attack on democracy, as I wrote about in that first nonfiction book, is all about these states behaving as laboratories of autocracy. And, and so my relentless focus now is to get the powers that be who care about democracy to see that. And to readjust our strategy politically. So we're not only focused on a few federal swing states, but we're actually focused on the heart of the problem, which is that state houses have been converted into these sort of um, fortresses attacking democracies every single day.
1: You have a website, it's like savedemocracy.us, where people can go look at some of the playbook stuff, uh, look at see some of the organizations that are out there working on it. Actually, I think I've interviewed the founders of most of them over the time on the podcast. But you decide to write a follow-up book, Saving Democracy, which is a user's manu- manual for Americans about what to do. What do you say in that? What should people do that care about this? Regular people.
0: So that was the the, the funny part. The reason I wrote the second book was because the first book, I, my number one feedback was, we love the book, but it's really depressing. <laughs> and I had to <laughs> keep, is. I had to keep, but at the end of the laboratories, I go through 30 steps that everyone should do. And readers of that book said, David, I love your 30 steps, but I had to keep skipping ahead to get to them to keep myself from being too depressed about all that you described. So I thought I'd write a companion book that goes far more through the very specific things people could do. I'm not doing this to make money out of selling books. So half of what I recommend in Saving Democracy is on that website that anyone can go to, savedemocracy.us. I mean, my number one goal is just to get these things out there. I also tweet about it all the time. The narrative frankly, for many parts, for Democrats for years, that the fate of democracy only comes down to a few swing state Senate races is so disempowering. Because if you don't live in those states these days, what is it, Pennsylvania, Georgia, a few others, you basically led to believe that you have nothing to do with the fight for democracy, that there's nothing you can do but send money to John Fetterman or Senator Warnock. Once you realize, actually, the battle for democracy is in all these states, their front line is Texas, it is Ohio, it is Mississippi, which is the band that led to Dobbs. That's where they're doing most of the dirty work. That means that wherever you are in America, you are on the front line of the battle, which means there's so much more you could be doing than you've been led to believe. And what Saving Democracy does is go through all the ways that you can participate in fighting for democracy, not just by helping people far away, but right where you are. So it goes through challenging school board races and going to school board meetings. It goes through the need to run everywhere. You know, 50% of the Tennessee Republicans or 40% of the Texas Republicans unopposed. One of the reasons they're so extreme is they're all unopposed. So let's start building an infrastructure in these states to make sure they're no longer unopposed. The, the, the lack of opposition to the extremists is the fuel to so much of the extremism. I go through all the ways that people can play roles as elections workers. Steve Bannon wants every election worker to be an election denier. Well, we got to recruit people who believe in election integrity and, and protect it. But I especially put a lot of time into how every single person who reads my book or hears me has a footprint of influence in their life and how they can use that footprint to lift democracy, Registering voters, engaging voters, getting people to vote early. So the book is basically like it's called a user's manual. It gives very specific ways, links to websites, worksheets that you can fill out. All of it to get people to see that there's a lot they can do to lift democracy right now that they're probably not doing. And rather than just watching, you know, the next Republican primary debate or sweating out every Biden-Trump poll as if that matters right now. I give people sort of an instruction manual, all things they could be doing to make a difference right now, all the way through next November and beyond.
1: It does seem like that mindset shift is a really important one, because in the case, say, where Trump wins and the Republicans gain control of Congress, that is going to be even more a time where we have to fight for democracy. Clearly, it would be very helpful to not go down that road and there's a lot that can be done right now but the fight doesn't end it continues yeah regardless
0: yeah i mean the, the whole theme of these books is it's a long game and it's a cross-country game it's in all 50 states and we've made so many mistakes you know repeatedly we make the same mistake again and again we think it's only about a few states we don't focus on the state house level where most of the damage is being done And we treat singular moments as if they're the end-all, be-all. I mean, and if that were all true after 20, democracy would have been safe. But as I began writing in March of 21, we won the White House. We won the Senate. We won the House. And guess what? Democracy was still under attack because they still had all the state houses. And so we have to see it as a long game. Every strategy is a long game. If Trump were literally locked up tomorrow and not running for president— they would still be attacking democracy in the same way. They'd still gerrymander. They'd still get rid of drop boxes. He is part of it, but it started before he ever ran, and it will continue long after he's gone. And we have to see it that way. And when we see it too narrowly, we're not fighting the battle the right way. We're fighting it, again, too narrowly. We're fighting it in a short-term way. We're not fighting in enough places. One of the the realities that, that Scares me, but also inspires me, and I hope others do. Is lately, even if we accomplish every goal that we've set out narrowly, the win the president is sent in the house. The presidency is sent in the house. If we win those goals, but don't start going beyond those goals, all the extremism that we are seeing will continue. The post-Dobbs hell we saw in Texas will continue because we're not fighting the extremism where it's doing the most damage, which is in these states. So we have to go broader. We have to have a longer game. We have to hold more people accountable. Of course, we have to beat Trump, but we've got to do more than beat Trump. We've got to go further. Only beating one person is clearly not solving the problem because we actually accomplished that once already. We've got to go further. And that's what I'm trying. Some people say, well, we don't have time to worry about what you're saying because we got to beat Trump. And I'll say, you don't think it's better for Joe Biden if there's a candidate in every single state house district in Arizona or Georgia versus 30 or 40% of them being left vacant, where the Republicans take credit for Joe Biden's infrastructure plan because we're not even there to campaign. So it's not a zero sum game either. We're better off for our federal goals if we run everywhere. But we're also better off for democracy we run everywhere. It helps us win our big goals. But if we don't define victory more broadly, then we're going to keep going through this sort of pattern. You know you have a bad plan if when you win everything you're supposed to win that you told yourself you're supposed to win and you still look up the next day and you're still not winning. Something's wrong. That's kind of what we've been doing. So my whole call to action is to broaden our strategy to be for democracy itself and not just federal offices and swing states.
1: That makes sense to me. It does feel like there's a lack of unification among, I don't know, the popular front against this right-wing move in the country. Why is that? And how can we get to that where all the people who are loosely allies who disagree on different things can be on the same page more?
0: Well, you know, what's funny is I, that's true. It's very diffuse. We can call it, but amid all the gloom and doom, we also have a hell of a winning streak right now for democracy. It goes back to Kansas, August of 2022, a 60-40 vote for a woman's right to choose. Every election denier running for Secretary of State in a swing state in 2022 lost. We flipped the Michigan and Pennsylvania state houses absolutely counter to the historic pattern that we're supposed to lose them when we have the White House. We win Wisconsin Supreme Court in April. We win the Ohio elections. We flip Virginia in November why do those things happen? Well, because people did do what you suggested. There's an army of democracy that understood that all those fights were about democracy itself. And they kind of put other differences aside in some places like Ohio, even crossing party lines to fight for democracy. And it worked. And the other thing that came together in this winning streak for democracy that goes back a year plus, again, in years we normally would be losing, like I saw in 10 when we lost or 14, The extremism of the far right is too much for most people. What's happened to this woman in Texas, uh, Kate Cox? I mean, the 10-year-old rape victim in in Ohio being forced to go to Indiana. This post-Dobbs world and election denialism and and censorship, it's guns everywhere in a way that 80% of gun owners don't agree with. I think our concern about democracy combined with the fact that their extremism is toxic, has led, so far at least, these elections that have come up, people saying, my God, this is a a huge fight. It may be a state far away, maybe for the Supreme Court of Wisconsin, we don't even know the name of the candidate, but we're fighting that fight and we win. And I think that has to be our attitude for this coming year. And it's harder, like you said, because it's higher profile and people can divide on certain issues around federal things. But I, I think that there is a formula that has worked very well for the last year. And one of my main missions now is to convince people, hey, let's not forget what worked for the last year and a half as we enter this very important year.
1: A lot of the recommendations that you have made for things that people can do are things that you've done yourself. You've run for office, you've canvassed, you've helped out the state party, you do this whiteboarding to explain things on Twitter. Uh, you So the information war, the electoral war, what's keeping you going on that?
0: I, what keeps me going is, one, it's just so important. I mean, I, I think that, and that's just my personality. Like, if it feels important to me, I'm in. And I kind of can't, even if I told myself, hey, relax, go go write books and teach and don't worry about anything else. I, I mean, I just don't have it in me to do that. And if it feels as important as the moment does right now.
1: Are you living in a state of anxiety about it?
0: Not really. I have a I have a personality where every morning I get up in a pretty good mood. I actually have little tricks like in the. Uh, so the August election in Ohio was literally the fate of Ohio's democracy. If that was lost, I don't know what I, I've always have sort of my sense of what I try to communicate of what we can do next. If we had lost that, I would have had a very hard time trying to say what we could do next. So that felt very heavy to me. So every night I would watch a West Wing episode and a Thirty Rock episode. And that would keep me balanced, sort of inspired by West Wing, really laughing hard at 30 Rock. So, yeah, I do a lot of reading. I love bike riding. I I try and do things that give me that moment. But I have a personality that I think I'm lucky to have this. The next morning, I can wake up and feel ready to go. At this moment, I also just feel very passionate that, that this task is critical. I feel like I see things quite clearly, and part of the process of when you write a book, it forces you to think things through. And so I think one reason may, maybe when I present my whiteboards and other things breaks through is because by writing these books, I force myself to think through things in a way that maybe others aren't quite there yet. So what I present feels fresh to people. And so when I get a response and, hey, what you're presenting is really helping me think about it, I obviously want to keep doing it. And to the extent people find it useful, I will. But I think more than anything, it's an energy that's motivated by a concern. And one of of the moments in my books that I think are both most troubling but both most inspiring for me are, we've been at moments like this in our country's history in the past. I mean, the parallels to what led to Jim Crow are so scary. And when I look at those moments in the past, I see moments where people could have done something and they failed and generations followed after that paid the price of that failure uh, in horrible ways, violent ways, and worse. And so the other thing is to see so clearly the parallels to moments in history that we're in right now also is a hell of a motivator. I don't want to be the generation that did what happened in the 1870s and 80s where they allowed a new democracy in the South to crumble and become Jim Crow when they could have stopped it, especially when I have young kids who are going to inherit whatever we do or don't do so the parallels to history are, I hate to say it as motivating it gets for me, both for the good, if we do things well, and for the bad, if we fail.
1: When you look around at the people who are really engaged in this fight, who's inspiring you?
0: You go back and look at, at a lot of civil rights leaders. Anyone listening to this, go read John Lewis's quotes. He
1: yeah, has a great autobiography. By yeah, way, yeah.
0: Well, but you go back, like, <laughs> when I read those quotes 15 years ago, I thought, oh, these are quotes about what they went through. They were historic quotes. Now I read them like, no, no, he's talking to us right now. You read his quotes about his struggle, that it is advice for all of us right now. So he's not with us anymore. This is why I quote him in my books. What he was saying then is literally our marching orders now about democracy is not a destination. It's a nonstop source of action on and on. I didn't say it as well as he did. Who are some modern day equivalents? You know, Stacey Abrams, I point to in Georgia. She led the long battle for democracy in the way I talk about we all have to. If she had given up every time they didn't win a US Senate seat in Georgia when she started, she would have quit 20 years ago. But she understood to get Georgia to where it needed to be was a long battle. And you fight it by registering. You fight it by running everywhere. You fight it by pushing for policies. She did a nonprofit. She went to court. So she's a very good sort of modern day equivalent of someone who understood how you win the long-term battle for democracy versus the, the way you lose it is you only think about it as the few US Senate races and that's it. And, and everything's about that two-year cycle.
1: Well, I really wish that Stacy in Georgia and you in Ohio had run at a time where your state would have allowed you guys to be statewide leaders. It's a real loss to the country, but I'm glad that you're both still in the fight. Is there a, a question I should have asked you that I failed to?
0: I would close with, folks, there's a winning streak going in our country for a reason at the at the state level. And it, the same energy that led to all the wins in 2022 and 23 that were unexpected, that were counter-cyclical. That grassroots-based, state-based energy is, frankly, the same thing that will win us some big things in 24 at all levels. We can't go through another cycle where we only win a few federal seats. We have to win them, and it's not guaranteed we will, but we got to go bigger and broader. My hope is people who, who read my books or hear this see that right now, there's so much we could all be doing using our own footprint wherever we live to fight for democracy in the broader way I'm talking about. And I just hope people will do it. And if, if anyone, you know, ever has questions on that or anything else, you know, you can find me at Twitter, David Pepper, other places. Look me up. I'm happy to help. help. And I'm always trying to give out guidance on how to best do that.
1: Well, I feel very moved by that. And I'm glad to hear it from you. That was David Pepper.